Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Good to see you. How many of you stayed up all the way to the end, the bitter end of the Ducks game? Come on, true fans, get your hand up. Ducks, we love them, even when they lose, right? That's our team. And when we get a QB, man, we're coming back, telling somebody. But you know what's even better than a Ducks win? Is a Huskies loss. Yeah, there's always something to be excited about. Sorry, Huskies. I know, Kate Anderson. Sorry, Kate. She's, she's a... She's, a true servant of God, but he's assigned her to root for the devil's team, the Huskies. Just kidding. Well, hey, so excited to have everybody here at Regal. Want to say a special welcome to Joy Church UO. Everybody at Regal, say hi to Joy UO. Good to see you guys. They just get to see my ugly mug on video, and so they don't know, but these people here love you guys. And uh, last week, they didn't have heat over there. So if you guys are cold today, we're really sorry. We're trying to get the heat on for you. We're going to pray for you, and we're going to send blankets over to help. Uh, with that. Well, so good to see everybody here today. Excited to be uh, in the middle of a series called You Can't Say That in Church. How many of you that have been here for some of the messages and been a part of the series have enjoyed this series? Cool. That's awesome. And uh, I'm having a great time sharing these talks. I'm going to tell you that as uh, the person preparing for the messages, I don't think I've worked this hard in a long time. So I need a raise. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm happy. I'm doing good. Uh, so excited to be a part doing this series. And what we're doing, if you're just joining us in this series, is we are taking on some of the tough questions and tough objections to the Christian faith, doing our best to answer some of those questions and objections on Sunday mornings. And we can't uh, cover it all, so we have two avenues available to you uh, beyond the Sunday, which is if you go to joyeugene.com, you can click on a tab that says resources right there on the front page, and we're providing more resources to study out some of these questions and topics for yourself which I would encourage you all to do. Even if you say, look, I'm gonna take 15 minutes a day over the next couple of weeks to learn a little bit more to number one, either establish your faith if you're a believer, but if you're a skeptic and you have some of these kinds of questions, even if you are a believer, but you're skeptical about some of the stuff we're talking about, because everybody's at a different place, right? Come on, it's good to go and learn. So that's, that's one avenue that we have available. The second avenue is that you can ask a question on there. You can click ask a question and we're doing our best to answer every question that comes in on a weekly podcast. It's getting out kind of late in the week. So if you don't see it in the middle of the week, just wait till Saturday, Friday. It's, it's usually, it takes a little while to upload and all that. So we're answering those questions and we've done a few of those and answered a lot of great questions that you guys have sent in. So I'd encourage you to do that. And here's the thing as a part of this series is we know that truth is not scared of honest doubt, right? That if there is a God and Christianity is true, you can open the door, you can turn over the rocks, you can ask your questions, and God is not scared of those questions. Our doubt does not invalidate his truth. Come on. And so if you're a skeptic and you're like, yeah, but I don't even know if this whole Christianity thing is true, welcome to church. This is the right place to be. This is the place that you should be able to lean in and ask those questions that really are a big deal to you. So that's what we're here to do, and we're gonna, we're gonna move forward with that today. Last week, we talked about the problem of evil and suffering and we, we looked at that in, in light of what happened in Las Vegas, that tragic shooting, that act of evil. Um, and we talked about how the cross of Christ uh, is, the, is both the answer and the antidote to the problem of evil and suffering. And we looked at the fact that God answers the logical problem of evil. Why is there evil? Where does it come from? But he also answers the emotional, the heart problem, and the, the problem, the personal problem of evil. We looked at the fact that God understands our suffering and understands the presence of evil in the world but he doesn't just get it. He's also present with us when we hurt. And not only that, but he offers us hope both for now and for the future. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take that step a step further and look into what is probably the most controversial 
topic in the area of evil and suffering, and probably what is the most one of the most controversial topics you'll find in Christianity, which is the topic of hell. So today we're going to talk all about hell. Somebody say, no, don't say that. Okay, hell yeah. All right, there we go. So that's what we're doing today. A lot of people are like, oh man, I'm so, my religious sensibilities are offended. No, come on, just have fun. It's all right. Having a good time. You're in a movie theater. You're not going to get hit by lightning. You're fine. So we're talking about hell today. And uh, I know if I was in Bible college and I said to my professors, hey, uh, we have a brand new church. We're less than two years old. It's a fun atmosphere. We're in a movie theater and we're going to take an entire Sunday and talk all about hell. They'd be like, "Uh, son, you're in the wrong class. You need to be in How to Shrink Your Church 101. Uh, Because hell is one of those issues that can be for a lot of people like, "Uh, what? What are we talking about with hell? How many of you as a believer that maybe the idea or the topic of hell has come up and you're kind of like, um, yeah, yeah, I guess we do believe that, and it, you kind of get awkward? Or if you're a skeptic, maybe it's one of those questions that's like, what's the deal with that? You guys believe in hell? And you believe in like the devil with his pitchfork and people are in hell and they're whipping people and laughing, ah, and this whole thing? And we're going to look into this today and lean in. Now, I don't know, everybody's in a different spot, coming from a different background when it comes to the idea of hell. For me, I grew up in in church. I grew up religiously. And so I grew up with what's called a Pentecostal conscience, a very overactive fear of hell. So for me, it was like, you know, man, that's a cute girl. Oh my God, I'm going to hell if I look. Uh, if I touch this or look this or, 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 or think this, I was nervous that I would die, like, you know, get hit by a car right after I'd lusted and then I would immediately go to hell. And I grew up with this very overactive. You can laugh. It's okay. I grew up with this overactive fear of hell. And some of you come from that background. Some of you come from the, maybe the other side of this background where hell was like a joke to you. So it's a place where, you know, yeah, it's a little warm. Somebody could turn the AC on, but I'm playing cards with my buddies, you know, and it's kind of a party. And that maybe is the, the idea of hell that you had is like, well, I don't want to be with all the goody two-shoes. I'll be in hell with my friends and we'll be drinking beer and playing cards and the devil will be there hanging out and we'll be like, sup, Lucifer, you know, and it was kind of that thing. Or maybe for you, hell was like cool because it's what tough guys say in action movies, right? I'll see you in hell. I don't know why nobody, it doesn't sound as cool to be like, I'm going to kill you with my machine gun and I'll see you in heaven. Thank you for the cursory laughs. Yes. But for everybody, it's a serious question. You know, when we talk about eternity Everybody in this room has someone that has gone on from this life and, and the question of heaven and hell, the question of afterlife, the question of eternity is a huge question. It's serious. Regardless of your background, maybe you have a messed up religious background idea, maybe you have a messed up secular idea of hell, but for all of us, it's a serious question and we're going to examine it today. And the reason it's a serious question, I, I think most of all, is because hell is a question about the character of God. The character of God. You see, we have to ask this question, if God is really this God of love and of truth and of beauty, you know, if you've, if you've been around church at all or maybe at least looked into what Christians think in some way, you'll kind of get this image that Christians think that God is, is good, that God is loving, that God is advocating for, for the human welfare to improve, that God isn't, isn't, you know, this sort of maniacal killer or sadistic torturer. Come on. So we think God is good and, and God... Uh, is, is beautiful and all this kind of thing. So does, does hell, the idea that, that hell exists or that God would allow someone to be in hell or go to hell, does it invalidate God's goodness? It's a question about God's character, isn't it? <clears throat> and therefore a serious question. And my goal for today, 
I won't be able to go through every single thing about hell because it's actually an incredibly huge topic. There's a lot of theological roads that run through it as an intersection. But my goal for us today is to leave here and understand that hell is actually an aspect of the goodness of God. And you're like, what? How could hell be good? Well, I'm not saying hell is good. I'm saying it's an aspect of the goodness of God. And I'll explain that. And I think what's important to do initially is for us to frame the question appropriately. And see, instead of asking the question, how could a loving God allow people to go to hell? What we should ask is this, why, sh- why, why would a loving God allow people to go to hell? You see, we assume, I think, too much. We take too much upon ourselves when we think that we, as human beings, whether you're a skeptic or a believer, that, that we have enough of a perspective about life and about human action and about freedom and about justice and about morality that, that we take too much upon ourselves when we take this sort of arrogant position to, to, to pass judgment on God for something that we don't have the scope of life to understand. And what I want to offer to you today and ask you to do is, is with me, take a posture of humility and say, okay, if, if God really is loving, I'm not going to just immediately assume he's not if hell exists. Um, maybe I'm going to examine what I think about hell, and maybe what I think about hell isn't actually accurate. And maybe what I should really be asking is, if God really is this God of love who does love the world desperately and love you and I desperately, then what, what, what state of events, what state of affairs, what state of existence would, would cause God to allow people to go to hell? Not, not how could he, but why would he? So would you with me take this posture of humility as we embrace this question? And what I want to do today is I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the necessity of hell, and I want to talk about the nature of hell. The necessity of hell and the nature of hell. And we're going to talk about those two things. Most people want to jump in immediately to the nature of hell. What's hell like? Uh, how hot is it? Is it like 150, 170? Like, what's the nature of hell? Come on, somebody. And, and they want to know that question. But, but the most important question is not really the what or the how, it's the why. Why does hell exist? Why would a loving God allow people to go there? Let's talk about that. You ready? Say, I'm ready, Pastor Jake. I'm ready. Let's talk about the necessity of hell. Two things that really inform this conversation about the necessity of hell. Two words, freedom and injustice. Freedom and injustice. And, and hell exists in the space created by these two uh, things. You could call them problems that have to do with the character and nature of God, but, but the way the universe works, and I'll explain this, that freedom is this reality that God created people with free will. In other words, people can do what they want. Now, whether you believe in God and accept God's existence or not, the reality is that when you want to do something wrong, okay, by any definition of what that means, when you want to do something wrong, God does not immediately smite you. How many of you have experienced this? Oh, smite me, oh mighty smiter. He doesn't just immediately smite you. The minute that you watch something you shouldn't watch or you, you maybe don't tip enough or, or maybe you, um, you know, go to Dutch Brothers eight times on your birthday and you're like, I haven't had my free drink yet. <laughs> I don't speak from experience on that. I'm just saying for a friend, somebody that maybe would do something like that. And God doesn't immediately just come in and <laughs> Zeus you. I'm spitting. He doesn't just fry you. Has anybody experienced this, right? You don't get toasted immediately. So humans are free to choose or reject God. They're free to choose to do good or free to choose to do evil. That's how the universe works. Freedom, it's there. The second issue is this issue of injustice. So what happens when people invariably, inevitably use their freedom to hurt someone else? 
So yeah, you're free to do stuff. You're free to, to, to cheat on your wife. You're free to drink way too much and drive. You're free to buy a gun and shoot someone. You're free to do that, aren't you? You say, no, there's laws, there's laws. Yeah, but you can actually physically go through the acts. God doesn't immediately smite you. So what happens when people choose to do these kinds of things? We call it injustice. What happens when people exercise their freedom to hurt other people, hurt themselves, and ultimately hurt God and offend God? What happens in light of this? And so hell exists in this space. This is why hell is a necessity, and we'll talk about this. But it starts with understanding the character and the nature of God. You see, God is loving, he's just, and he's perfect. God is loving, just, and perfect, which means this. God cannot be anything less than perfectly loving or perfectly just in any given situation. And and this is what I mean. God is always doing and always will do and always has done the very most loving thing and the very most just thing possible in every situation. This is the intrinsic nature of God. He's perfectly loving, perfectly just in all ways to all people. Are you with me? Uh, His intrinsic nature is love. In 1 John 4, 8, it says, But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Culture gets this messed up because we say love is God. No, that's that's not right. It's God is love. In other words, love is defined by the character of God, not the opposite way, okay? So we understand that, but God is love. It's intrinsic nature. But God is not just love. God is also morally perfect and righteous. He is just And justice demands accountability for our actions. Demands accountability. You see, God can't just be perfectly just and loving for you and not for everyone else. And you begin to see this problem that emerges, and we'll keep looking into this. So what does God do? What happens when you or I exercise our freedom to hurt another or to hurt God? Because remember, God is always perfectly loving. He's always perfectly just. And and those things are informing his decision and his action. And he always has to do, he's bound by his own nature, okay? In the same way that a fish can't just leave the domain of the sea, God cannot logically break his own intrinsic nature. That that would be a a logical impossibility. So God always acts loving and always acts in justice. Uh, uh, Not in justice, but inside of justice in a just manner, always. And let me illustrate this in, in terms I think we will understand. I have three kids, and I love my three kids dearly. I have Evelyn, Jack, and Penny. Evelyn's six, Jack is four, Penny's two. Now that their ages have become even numbers like that, it's easier to remember how old they are. And I hate it when you have a baby and you're like, how many months are they? Um, they're like more than three and less than 200 months. I don't know. They, there's, there's some age in between one and five. Um, but I have three children and I love my children dearly. I love each of them equally I don't love one of them more. I don't, I don't love one of them less. There's days when I like one of them less than another. Let's be honest, uh, just based on their behavior, children. Whew. Okay, but I don't want one of them to succeed more or, less, more or less. I want all my kids to achieve all their dreams and to prosper and to do well. How many of you understand this? The heart of a father that I, I'm responsible for my kids. And yet, what do I do? How do I respond when one of my children hits or steals from or calls a name or pulls hair. If Evie pulls Jack's hair and calls him stupid, which happens just about every five minutes of the day. Hello, parents. You with me? This isn't a philosophical question. This is like, yeah, that's reality for us at the Schmelzer house. There's always injustice being practiced from one to another. What, what do I do when one of my dear children hurts another one of my dear children that I love perfectly, love 100%? There, there comes this problem. You see, 
there has to be a disciplinary response towards the offender in order to demonstrate love towards the offended. You see, if I don't, if, if Evie pulls Jack's hair and she calls him dumb, and I just say, you know, Jack, just forget about it. What does Jack, if I always do that, what does he eventually come to understand? That I don't love him. You see, no, no, he thinks you're not just. No, no, that's not what happens. He thinks that I don't love him. Because what happens is justice is a response to love. Justice is a response to love. And love responds to justice. But I also love the offender. I also love Evelyn, right? And so I have to act in a perfect manner. And you begin to see, this is where God finds himself as the father of all humanity. That he has all these kids that he loves 100%, loves equally. But if he doesn't respond with justice, then the accusation is that God is not loving. Because what is God going to do when somebody comes and steals your lunchbox? Let's move on in this. You're like, "Uh, don't steal my lunchbox. But God has to respond just like a father or a mother has to respond in justice towards the offender, but also maintain love for the offended. Let's move on. This shows us the injustice problem that we have in the world. You see, when we talk about hell, and most of the people that have a problem with hell that are saying, ah, God is, is bunk or he, he's wrong or he's a monster because of hell, the people that are mad about hell it's usually only, it's only a problem for the person upon whom justice is being enforced. You know, here's human nature. We love justice to be served when it's on our behalf, but not when it's on our backside. Come on, when somebody speeds through a school zone going 80, we're like, oh, I hope the police get them. And then when they get pulled over, we're like, you got what you deserved. You're a sinner. Sinner. <laughs> Come on. But when you're late for work and you're the one that sped through and you get pulled over, you're like, Come on. You see, we love justice. We love it when it's on somebody else, but we hate it when it's on us. But that's the point of justice, is that it doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. It shouldn't discriminate. Justice is blind. And yet we want God, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want it both ways. Well, I want God to do everything for me so I feel good, and I can do anything I want, and I can hurt anybody I want, but God won't do anything. And God says, look, that would make me not loving to you or them. Well, God, but I don't like, I don't like your response. Miroslav Volf, he illustrates this so well. He, was a, he is a Croatian, and he, he, he speaks with and understands the, the great atrocities that have gone on in Europe and some of the warfare and things like this in Eastern Europe. And he says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, in other words, Western civilization. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. In other words, peace. Let's just have peace. Don't, don't need to be angry. Why don't, we don't need to fight back. Because that would be violence. Wrong. He says, Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. In other words, if we're going to tell people not to fight back, hey, you get punched in the face, don't punch back. Evie, you you get your hair pulled by Jack, don't pull his hair back. The only way that we're going to be able to say this is by saying that God is going to judge the wrong that happens. That a just judge who actually is perfectly loving and perfectly just will judge correctly and accurately so we should not take judgment into our own hands. 
He says, violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What's he saying? He's saying that it's the safe and the comfortable people who are mad about hell. The ones who haven't had their sister pulled out of their hut and raped by soldiers when they come through. See, it's really easy to be like, God, you don't have the right to judge the world when you don't have any problems and really you haven't really suffered any injustice and you're sitting at Starbucks drinking your latte. Oh, I think God's such a jerk because he judges people. Yeah, but think about this. If you're the person that's being, this injustice is being practiced upon. See, if we react negatively against God because he's just, then we have to, we're missing this whole problem of injustice. I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who has gone through atrocities, who's been really, injustice has really been practiced against. I know there's people in this room that have really felt injustice, but think about this. If you were to stand before a judge in the city of Eugene and maybe one of your family members had been brutally attacked and murdered and, and, and robbed or whatever, and you're standing before the judge and the judge was like, yeah, you know, but I really like this person that did this, and you know, can't we just all get along? Can't we just forget about it? You would say, come on! Judge, you were put in this position to do something about this. You with me? Injustice is a problem. And God must deal with injustice in order to remain loving and just. Now, here's the amazing thing about God. So you look at this thing about hell, and again, we're asking it not from this arrogant posture of judging God, but asking it from a posture of humility, saying, God, why would you do this? And, and then now, now something emerges that we have to look into, that God responded to the problem of injustice by saying, I will pay the bill. See, the amazing thing about the Christian faith is that it presents a God who looked down at our, messes, our mess, our, our misery, our problems that our evil and injustice created, and he said, I will take it upon myself. And God responded to the problem of injustice with the cross, that God took the punishment and paid the debt for our injustice. Joshua Ryan Butler says, Jesus both reveals the justice of God against our sin and bears that justice on our behalf revealing God's unsurpassable love for us. The crucified king reveals on the cross that we are more sinful than we could ever, we ever could have imagined and more loved than we ever dared dream. Isn't that a beautiful reality? A beautiful thought that God himself looked at our injustice and said, I will step in and I will make a way. But then we come to the second problem, the problem of freedom. Because what about the people that say, I don't want that? You see, not only are people free to choose to do the wrong thing, they're also free to reject what God has done to help them. You and I are both free to do injustice, to practice evil, but we're also free to say, God, take the cross and shove it. God, I don't want what you did. Jesus, take the cross. Thanks, but no thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll pay my own way. I don't need a crutch. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna go about my own business. I'll, I'll deal with my thing. I'm basically a good person. So, what about the people that reject that payment? What do we do then? Where do we go from here? We're talking about the necessity of hell. Okay, are you with me? You see, hell then becomes a necessary reality when it comes to the satisfaction of justice. If God has already paid this payment, but we say, "Yeah, but I don't want it," then what does God do with us? Because He can't. He's not going to break your will your, and make you accept mercy. He, he, he's not going to do that. That would break his love. It would invalidate his love. So we have this 
freedom problem. What does God do when a person exercises their free will to do evil? And then, by extension, what does God do when a person doesn't want God? When a person literally says, look, I don't want God. Whatever he is, whatever he represents, I don't want him. I don't want him in my business. I don't want him in my bedroom. I don't want him in my culture. I don't want God in my life. See, there's a lot of people that are exercising this free will to just say like, hey, I'm king of my universe. Leonardo DiCaprio is holding my back as I'm at the front of the boat. That was an awesome joke. Come on, you gotta laugh. Come on, you will help me out here. Like, I'm the king of the world, right? It's me. It's not, I don't want King Jesus. King who? No, I'm king. It's King Jake. It's King George, whatever it is, but I'm the king. And I don't want Jesus. What does God do with the people that say, God, get out of my business? I'll tell you what he does. Because he's perfectly loving, is he honors your choice. God says, have it your way. And this is where hell comes into existence. Hell exists in the space created by human choice. And let me say something to you. If you don't walk away with anything else, you need to understand this, that hell, no one goes to hell who doesn't choose to go who doesn't choose to be there. You see, we have this image of God like, ah, ha, 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 chucking people into the frying pan. It's not what it is. It's not what it is. If you, if you want to see an image of God contrasted with hell, you need to look at the cross and realize that God is desperately working to cause people to not make that decision. But if they do make that decision, then that is the destiny that they have chosen. And no one goes to hell who doesn't choose to be there. C.S. Lewis said, in the end, there will be two types of people, those that say to God, your will be done, and to those whom God says, your will be done. Timothy Keller says something similar. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? So let me just say this about human freedom, that hell is the ultimate monument to human freedom. The existence of hell, what it ultimately proves is that God will we'll allow people to choose against him. It's the ultimate monument to human freedom, but it doesn't get rid of injustice and therefore hell is a necessary reality when it comes to the satisfaction of love and justice. So that's the space of the necessity of hell. Because of God's character, his intrinsic nature, and because of the issue of freedom and the issue of injustice. And hopefully that is clear. Let's move on to the nature of hell. And this is probably what you wanna to know too. You're like, Jake, what's hell like? What's it like? I'm interested. How about you? Not personally experienced interested, but I'm interested. <laughs> it's like people are like, hey, you want to go camping? No, you can just tell me about it. I pretty much get everything that I need to know from, from your description. Yeah, you forgot something. Yeah, your house. Okay. So we've looked at the necessity of hell, but let's look into the nature of hell. What is hell like? And I think number one, I've mentioned this, but we need to combat the caricature of hell that exists most of the common imagery that comes to mind when we say, even when I said today, hey, I'm going to talk about hell, you immediately went somewhere in your head, right? You went somewhere. You were looking at a cartoon in your head, and there's fire and all this kind of stuff, and God's laughing, ah, and demons are there whipping people, and you have imagery. Now, most of this imagery that we have from our religious upbringings and from pop culture and so on and so forth, even well-meaning people that have been like, yeah, I, I, I died and went to hell, and this is what it's like, and no, it's not. Okay. Most of that stuff comes from the Middle Ages. Most of that stuff comes from Dante's Inferno. Most of that stuff comes from sources other than the Bible. See, the Bible, by and large, uses figurative language, language to describe literal things. Now, we have to be conversant with this before we move on. Is that when the Bible talks about fire, 
Um, it's not necessarily saying, and I'm not saying it's not, so just bear with me here as we walk through this. There's, there's a lot of metaphor and figurative language used in the scripture to describe something that is really bad, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we should then build a picture like this is exactly where we're going to go, okay? Now, before you get all mad at me and say, oh, you're saying the Bible's not literal. No, I'm not saying that. Um, we use this kind of language all the time. If you were late for church, you might say, hey, I had to run to church today. Uh, I had to fly down the freeway. Well, did you actually fly? No, what you meant is I went fast, okay? So we understand this, this kind of usage. Are you with me? So what's going on, though, when we talk about hell is that most of us are coming to the table and we're loaded to the gills with preconceived notions, presuppositions, and assumptions about what hell is, what it's like, and we have all this data that we've got from all these different sources, and we think we get it, but we don't get it. And what we need to do is, is lay it all on the table and say, we're going to come and look at it with fresh eyes, whether you are a believer, Christian, uh, whether you are not, whether you're a skeptic, wh whatever you're coming from, just understand a lot of what we probably think or imagine about hell is wrong or at least misguided. And we're going to look at it with fresh eyes. And I think here's what's most important to understand. God is not a vindictive monster laughingly chucking people into a furnace, right, and roasting them. Uh, and hell is not this torture chamber that God is holding shut where people are in there blah, screaming and all this kind of stuff. If that image is what you have, it turns God into this, again, vindictive monster. And we need to understand that's not the reality. Okay, are you with me here? Okay, so let's get rid of that caricature. Now let's look at what the Bible actually says. We need to understand that hell, God doesn't win when people go to hell. See, I think, again, we ask, well, how could God let people go to hell? And we think that God is there laughing and, and excited about it. No, hell is a tragedy for God. you got to realize that, that God is personally invested in the alternative destiny for humankind. That sin, yes, your destiny is hell, but he invested the riches of heaven in the person of Jesus to die on the cross. If we follow that train of logic, we have to understand that hell is a tragedy for God. That God is not happy when people exercise their free will and choose a life apart from him, choose eternity apart from him. God does not win when people reject his mercy. Come on, somebody. So let's talk about hell. Let's talk about the nature of hell. First things first, hell is a reality. So if you thought, hey, I'm going to come to church. It's a cool church. We're in a movie theater and, we're, and you know, hell isn't really real. No, it's not a real thing. No, wrong. Hell is real. And, and, and here's the thing. If Christianity is true at all, hell's a real reality. It's, it's, it's there. It exists. It's referenced directly and indirectly in the scripture. Regardless of how a person wants to feel about this, you can't throw it out. It's just laced all the way through the whole Bible. And Jesus himself talked about hell quite a lot. So a lot of people are like, I love that stuff that Jesus says about loving your neighbor, and I love forgiveness and grace, and the cross was cool, and I love all this good stuff, Jesus, when he made bread. I love bread. You know, Jesus fed people, and Jesus is so cool, but Jesus talked about hell. So if you like the stuff about grace and forgiveness, you got to look at what Jesus said about hell. Okay, let's look into it. Jesus, when he talked about hell, he mostly used this word Gehenna, which is a transliteration uh, of, of the Speaking of a valley that was outside of Jerusalem, it was the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. It was a place that the Israelites had historically gone, and they'd actually burned their children to false gods, Molech and Baal. And they'd, it was a place where they, it was associated with human sacrifice. It was associated as a place that God was angry about, that based on this injustice and this evil. And what ended up happening is it became a refuse pit, a valley, a, a dung heap, a trash heap, and they lit it on fire. So it was this place of burning garbage called Gehenna. And so when Jesus was talking in his culture 
uh, when he was speaking about hell, and I'll read some of the verses about this, he said Gehenna because he wanted people to understand this is what hell is. It's a burning place of destruction. It's a ruinous place. It's a, it's a burning trash heap. This is what Jesus mostly used when he talked about hell. He used that word Gehenna. What is the imagery that the Bible uses? The Bible talks about hell as a place of, that you're separated from God. It's a place of perishing. It's a place of fire, of isolation, darkness. It's a place of ruin and destruction. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And again, it's this word Gehenna. So Jesus is, what he's doing here is he's using a figurative language. He's saying, look, understand that hell, when we talk about judgment and the finality and all this, think about Gehenna, where we throw out dead, they actually would throw dead bodies in there. The ones that were too poor to be put in a grave would get thrown into this refuse, uh, this valley with this garbage dump, and there was trash and everything burning there. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. So again, you get that imagery of destruction and being separated. How many of you are having fun today? Praise Jesus. We're talking about hell. Amen. Okay, moving forward. So we don't have time to go through a whole Bible study, but here's the gist. Hell exists. It's really bad, and it's final. It's, it exists, and it's really bad, and it's final. If you took all the sum total of everything the Bible says, you can pretty much dial it into that, that hell is really bad, and that it's final. And again, why does it exist? It's not because God is angry and mad and vindictive. No, it's because it, it, it's God honoring the choice of a person, even after all that God has tried to do. But it's really bad, it's, and it's final. Let's look at the three main theological views of hell. And I think this is going to be interesting to you, because I, I believe that when we do a proper study of theology, that it, it actually begins to tear down the caricature even more, and why we can look at hell as an aspect of God's goodness. So I'm going to give you three main theological views, and this is an opportunity for all of us to put on our, our uh, uh, theology hats and, and look into these. But we need to understand there's three main views, and there's people that love Jesus, uh, that, that honor the scriptures, that hold to each of these three views. I don't think they're all accurate. In fact, I have a position, and I'll explain my position to you, and it might not be what you think. Um, but there's three main views, and we need to be careful that we don't you know, immediately judge other Christians for having different views that they have. So we're going to look at this. So the three main views of hell, the first one is traditionalism, the second one is universalism, and the third one is conditionalism. Now, here's what they mean. Traditionalism is the traditional view, and it's basically the mainstream view of hell uh, that people hold to, that if you go to most evangelical churches, this is the view that you're going to hear people say, and this is the view that, that it basically is, that hell is a place where those that reject God are kept in eternal conscious torment. So this view is often called ECT, eternal conscious torment. And, th and this view is based on this idea that people live forever. And so if a person rejects God, then they live forever in hell and they're basically suffering uh, and in torment. Now, here's the thing. Even those that hold to this traditional view 
they don't think that, that most of the scholars that look into this, they don't think there's like literal fire burning people. What they understand is that the state of existence that a person finds themselves in is an anguishing, tormenting place, but it's not God actually torturing people, okay? So follow that, but make sure we get the right idea. But ECT, eternal conscious torment, that's the first view. The second view is universalism, which is the view that everyone is eventually saved. So this view holds that people go into a purgatorial type of a situation. So if you reject God, you reject Jesus, you go into this place of hell, but eventually um, you suffer for your sins, but eventually you get out, like you turn your heart to God. Now, I think this is a really nice idea. Here's my opinion about this, totally unbiblical. Like I said before, every single verse about hell, it, it, even the Greek language that it uses, it uses the word ionos, it means eternal, it means forever, it means that judgment lasts forever. Uh, it says in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed upon, to man once to die and then comes judgment. There's nothing biblically that supports this view of universalism. Um, what, where it typically comes from is, this, is, is kind of a sentimental or idea that, well, we'd like it to be nicer than it sounds or than it seems, so therefore we'll, we'll work on this idea. Now, that being said, there's Christians that believe this, okay? And we need to be careful that we don't just immediately throw them out and be judgmental, okay? So we need to understand, yeah, that's a view. Here, my opinion as your pastor, not biblical. So I would encourage you to study that, find out why people think that, but that's my caveat for you. Now, I'll give you the third view, and this is actually the view that I personally hold theologically, and I'll explain why. The third view is called conditionalism, and I'll tell you what it means. The first two views of hell, what you need to understand is that they are based on a very core foundational idea, which is that a person lives forever no matter what. So the first two views of hell, the traditional view and the universalistic view, they assume they, in their core idea that the soul is immortal apart from God. And you go, well, why is that important? It's, it's very, very important. You see, conditionalism is a different idea. Conditionalism, which is what I believe, is the idea that you do not have eternal life. You and I do not have eternal life intrinsically, uh, that eternal life was something that is external to us, that a person does not have eternal life unless they receive Jesus. And I'll explain this. So a conditionalist believes this, that the soul is not immortal apart from God. Conditionalism states that eternal life is granted by trusting Jesus and that souls that reject Christ will suffer for their sins for a finite period of time and eventually cease to exist. So this is what I believe, and I'll explain why. Conditionalism is the belief that eternal life is conditional upon accepting God's or Christ's gift of salvation. So when I read John 3.16, I take it at face value. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. When you study this out in original language, this word perish, which I have in Greek, it means eradicated, destroyed, gone, you're done. You're, you're no more. Uh, but have eternal life. So what we see here is that eternal life and perishing are contrasted. Now, I know for a lot of you, you're like, oh man, our pastor's a hypocrite. He's a, he's a heretic. Might be true, but let's keep looking in. Uh, do we have eternal life apart from God? This question about looking at John 3.16 and saying, does this actually show a condition here? Let's go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. I want you to think about this. And, you, and most of you know this story. God tells Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. How many of you remember this? Okay, and there's two trees in the garden. What's the other tree? Tree of life. And God says, in the day that you eat of the tree of the fruit, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what's going to happen? You shall surely what? 
You shall surely die. And then what happens is Adam and Eve make this choice. They say, you know what? We're going to take the fruit from the tree. And what they were doing is they were choosing existential autonomy. We will be the own masters of our morality, the own masters of our truth and epistemology. We will be our own God. That's what that represents. They took their own morality and truth, and they inadvertently, what they did is they also took on autonomy in their mortality. Because then what God says is, okay, you want to be self-sufficient. You get to eat that fruit all the way to the very end. And what does God do? He kicks them out of the garden, and they no longer get to eat of the tree of life. So here's something we need to understand. Eternal life was external to Adam and Eve. It was not internal. The Jews, the Hebrew people and Jewish people never believed in the immortality of the soul. That view comes in about three or 400 years after the time of Jesus. The very first Christian who's very well known and he's an awesome theologian, but the very first person to uh, basically bring out the traditional view of hell is St. Augustine. It was many centuries after the time of the early church. And yet it's the traditional view. So I know for some of you, you're like, ah, but I grew up learning this, that hell, that you're in there and that you're just being tortured forever or tormented forever. And, and this view, Jake, you're talking about, it sounds like you're taking the easy way out. No, no, actually, it's not any easier or nicer. But, but listen, let's keep looking at the scripture. Eternal life was external to them. Uh, and we can see this clearly brought out in the scriptures. When you begin to see with this, this idea that the soul is not immortal apart from God, you're going to see some things in the Bible. Look at 2 Timothy 1.10. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way of, to life and immortality. Why does, and it says, he illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. Why does Paul tell Timothy that the gospel, the good news, will give immortality if people are going to live forever no matter what? Why do we think that a person will live forever apart from God? That's not in the Bible. You will not find that idea in the Bible. So, I mean, I want you to study this out for yourself, but you won't find it. Listen to this. In 1 John 5, 11, it says, And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So here's why I'm talking about this. The conditional view is this, that hell is not this torture chamber where God is roasting people forever, that if that were the case, it would perhaps be an attack upon the character of God, that it would be actually unjust for God to do that. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look into this. I want you to study it out. We're gonna put the resources up on the page. And again, there's people that have the different views that have studied the Bible, that love Jesus, is that okay that we might have disagreements on theology from time to time with our brothers and sisters? Yeah? But for me, when I look into God's justice and his love, and I look into the scripture, and I've done a years-long study into this, what I have found for myself is that this view reconciles all of the threads because it allows God to be loving, just. You look into the scripture, you go back to the Garden of Eden. Mankind didn't have eternal life. When they were kicked out of the garden, they lost eternal life. And that eternal life is an aspect of the gospel. It's part of what makes the gospel such good news. That you are not going to live forever unless you choose Jesus. And even existence is a gift. See, when you actually look at this philosophically, even for someone to exist in hell, you go, that's not a gift. But, but existence and life is a gift. That's always how the Bible talks about it. Death is always the invader that has come to pollute what God originally intended, which was eternal life. But we didn't have eternal life just because. So look into that. So those are the three 
uh, views of hell, three theological views of hell. How many of you find that to be interesting? How many of you are like, I never knew that before. I never thought about this before. Cool. So keep looking into it. So what's important for us today? How should we respond? How should we respond to the idea of hell, to the necessity and the nature of hell? Whatever hell is like, whether you're a person that holds to that traditional view, even if you're a person that's looking into universalism, again, as I said, I don't believe that, but if you're looking that way, or conditionalism, no matter what, hell is very bad, and it's forever. It's final. It's final. So how should we respond to this? Three things. Repentance, humility, and urgency. Number one, repentance. God does not want anyone to end up in hell no matter what it looks like, it's not good either way. No matter what view you hold, it's bad. That's what we have to understand. And God does not want anyone to end up there. He has literally done everything possible to save us. It says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Come on, somebody. God's heart is for people to, to choose out of their own free will to receive his, his mercy. And repentance just means turning around and walking the other way. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, here's the thing. God isn't setting up hell to scare you into heaven. That's not the point. And I think we've looked at that, the necessity and nature of hell. That's not the point. God's mercy and his grace and his goodness are enough to draw people. And that's what God is calling you with today, saying, come and know, come and taste and see that I'm good. Come and partake of life. Come and partake of hope. Repentance. Number two, we should respond with humility. And this is specifically for the Christ followers in the room, for us as believers, that it's one thing to tell people that there is a judge, and it's quite another to take his place. Come on, somebody. See, a lot of people, the reason hell is a problem, why it's a question, is because a lot of maybe even well-meaning Christians have sort of postured themselves as like, you're going you're gonna to burn in hell for that. Oh, you're this, you're that, you're going to burn. That's we need to take a step back, a few steps back, and have a posture of humility. When Jesus talked about final judgment, he cast it in terms of surprise. When you look into Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, both of them were surprised at their fate, which scares the snot out of me. It causes some humility to come up in my heart, because Jesus says, look, you didn't realize, but you were ministering to me when you visited the, the sick and and the people in prison, and you served the poor, and you clothed those that needed to be clothed. You were ministering to me, and they're like, Lord, you, that was you? With that? Yeah, come into my, my glory. Come in. And the goats are like, Lord, we did great stuff for you. And Jesus says, depart from me. I didn't know you. And what you see here is surprise that both sides didn't have a firm grasp on what it was to be in or out, and how should we respond? Humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, in that verse, it commands us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. If you're supposed to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, how should you think about somebody else's salvation? With some humility. We, we need to be careful. We, we don't know who's in and out. Don't be like, oh, well, I go to church with this guy, so he's in and this person's out. That's not even what the gospel's about. Know Jesus. Serve Jesus. Love Jesus. Have some humility. Let's not be, we're not the judge of the world. Come on. We're not the fruit inspectors of society. Oh, well, society's messed up. Duh, the Bible already said that. You didn't give us a revelation. We already knew that. Well, these people are, are messed. Yeah, you ever looked in the mirror? You are too. We all need Jesus. Hello. Humility. How should we respond? Number three, urgency. Whatever hell is, again, it's bad. It's not good. 
And as followers of Christ, our life should be full of urgency to share the hope that is within us. We are commanded to make disciples of Jesus. Why? Because there's a reality. Eternity is on its way for everybody. Jesus is coming back. You're like, when? What do you know the date? Yeah, it's in about 100 years for everybody in this room. Because he's either coming back or we're going to go meet him. Hello. And so we need to have some urgency to realize, okay, hell's a real thing. Eternity with Jesus and eternal life is a real thing. I need to respond with some urgency. That's my task as a disciple of Jesus. I want to live my life as a proclamation of the goodness of God. I want to live my life as a proclamation. Our job is to bring heaven to earth and to bring as much of earth to heaven as we can. Come on. Preaching good. That was good. Our job is to bring heaven to earth now and to bring as much of earth to heaven as we can. Come on. So we need to respond with repentance, humility, and urgency. Let's close today. We should respond this way to the knowledge of hell. Hell's not that caricature. Hell exists in the space of human freedom. It's God's response to the problem of freedom and injustice and God's love that demands he provide justice while allowing people the freedom to reject his mercy if they want to. I hope and pray that today your eyes have been opened as we've looked into this topic.